It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni, and on today's show, we're going to talk about a kind of evolution happening in our society and societies throughout the world. It's a change that's organic in the sense that no one had to provoke it. It's just happening. Happening through revelations in science about biology and in our zeitgeist about gender itself. With us today, we have Julie Rowley, Associate Professor of Sociology at Wilson College. She's joined us to discuss gender norms in our modern culture. Thank you for joining us, Julie. Um, If we could start with what got you to Chambersburg and some of your background. Okay, thank you for having me today. Um, I came to Chambersburg to Wilson College in 2005. Uh, by way of Fort Collins, Colorado. I did a PhD program in sociology at Colorado State. Um, My background is, uh, I've kind of taken the circuitous route to sociology. I did a BA in um, English, and I did a second major in peace studies. I did a master's degree in applied ethics and philosophy. And during that graduate program, um, I took a sociology course that changed the course of my life, quite literally. So Um, That's how I got to Wilson. Okay, fantastic. So I want to start out with some definitions. Um, Primarily, let's talk about gender and defining what we mean by gender. Now, this is a definition I've I've got. The state of being male or female typically used with reference to social and cultural differences rather than biological ones. Uh, Secondarily, grammatical gender is only very loosely associated with natural distinctions of sex. Does this accord with your understanding of gender and definition? Yeah, the way that we talk about it in sociology is that we do make this distinction between sex and gender, which in terms of the culture, um, you'll see these terms used actually sort of interchangeably. Mm -hmm. And so people will ask, uh, you know, are you a male or female? And by the box that you check, it'll say gender, where sociologically, Uh, we would talk about being male or female as one sex, one sort of biological, reproductive organs, um, hormones, that kind of thing. Gender uh, are all the cultural meanings that go along with that biological or physical difference. So um, attributes that are assigned to you by virtue of the fact that you're male or female. So when we talk about gender, we're talking about Uh, the sort of spectrum, um, if we're thinking in a binary between women and men, uh, if we're talking about sex, then we're talking about uh, females and males. So that's Mm -hmm. the kind of distinction that we make. So these attributions of gender, how do we understand how they're placed upon us versus what is just who we are? Right. Well, we oftentimes sort of talk about things in terms of human nature, right? Mm -hmm. And sociologists really don't believe uh, in human nature per se, right? We think that uh, we sort of learn to be human and we learn who we are and, and society is the teacher, right? Sort of all the institutions, the social interactions, the groups to which we belong, Um, sort of teach us who we are. Mm -hmm. And this is true in terms of being sort of a biological male or a biological female. Um, Of course, what's one of the first things that someone uh, asks someone who's going to have a baby, right? Is it a boy or a girl? And that's because we so socially organize society around gender. We do it around race and ethnicity. We do it around class and other sort of variables of uh, our own social identities. But... um, 
when we think about gender norms, those are going to be, again, those ideas that are associated with um, either being female or male. And uh, when we talk about norms, we're talking about social expectations for appropriate behavior in given contexts, right? So if you're um, a biological female, when you're young, I mean, the messages that I got uh, were things like, you know, girls don't do this. Girls sit in this way. Uh, girls sit uh, or girls speak in a certain way, right? We learn through our society, through our interactions, through institutions, how to be a boy or a girl, uh, a man or a woman in the society. Right, we come to fulfill the expectation put on us. Correct, Mm -hmm. correct. Mm -hmm. Although, right, now we're talking much more about sort of gender fluidity and this sort of simple binary is much more complex. It's also much more complex in terms of even just thinking about... um, biology and sort of this simple binary between uh, males and females. Uh, Biologist by the name, I think she's a biologist, Anne Fausto Sterling sort of talks about the five sexes, right? That there is even sort of uh, more fluidity than we oftentimes think about in terms of this simple binary between uh, males and females, that you have intersexed individuals, for example. And what's interesting in those cases, right, is that when a child is born and it's not really clear uh, what their, for example, genitalia are, someone makes that um, determination for them, right? Right. Oftentimes it's the doctor uh, in consultation, maybe or maybe not, with the parents. And so that determination is made before you know at at birth basically right in part because we only think in terms of those binary kind of categories so the biological categories are separate from the gender categories correct talk a little bit about that the biological factors and how important they are well it's interesting because um part of the evidence for this idea that gender is not something that's biologically based comes from anthropological research, you know, Margaret Mead's research, for example, where when you look at other cultures, uh, the behaviors of men and women are very different. In some cultures, you know, women are, and in fact, think about how we even think about farmers, right? We think about farmers in our own society as being men. Mm-hmm. But in other cultures, right, in other societies, farming is done primarily by women. So, um, Right, we have these certain ideas about uh, "quote unquote" kind of natural behaviors, right? That that our behavior is somehow based in our biological makeup, when really, as I suggested, the um, anthropological evidence suggests that our behavior is much more varied. So, when we're thinking about behavior, which is what sociologists and social scientists do, uh, human behavior, we can't sort of attribute particular kinds of behaviors to being male or female it's all about sort of gender and how certain cultures societies define what's appropriate in terms of um, certain kinds of bodies in their societies or cultures do you think that in some other cultures that these determinations are kind of set up to the advantage of the society in other words if in another culture women turn out to be better farmers then women are elevated to farming. Or does that make sense? It's kind of like for competence, not necessarily for gender. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily competence. I think we do learn these things, but it's also just how um, 
people are organizing the society, right? Sort of mm -hmm. what makes sense in a particular kind of place. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think anyone is sort of born being competent in one sort of area or another. These are things that we learn. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that would be true in terms of the behaviors that we associate with sort of being a man or being a woman mm -hmm. in a particular society. Okay. Um, gender roles versus gender identities. Mm -hmm. um, let's, let's talk about that. I think we're still in this area of cultural expectations. Mm -hmm. um, now, you're on campus. Mm -hmm. So you're in a, which might call a, a live laboratory. Uh, what changes are you seeing? How are you seeing these gender roles and gender identities becoming more fluid? Um, mm -hmm. If you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, um, roles, right, are expectations, and they're tied to culture, and culture is dynamic and constantly changing, so it's not static. Um, if we think about gender roles, we can even just go back, now we'd go back maybe sort of 70 years. What was the expectation in our own society for what women should do? And that is stay at home, right, the kind of domestic roles that changed and so those expectations are changing so i think gender role expectations are changing um for some folks i think they embrace those changes other folks i think it's a little bit more challenging right because that really does shake up things in a society when you've got more women who are going out to work that's changing more women in college right now uh, more than women men. in college right exactly um, so gender roles, again, are about those expectations. Gender identity is how people sort of identify in terms of their, uh, in themselves as individuals, right? Um, and again, I think we can think about now more people sort of being more comfortable, particularly younger people, um, with, uh, kind of breaking out of some of those very um, sort of traditional and binary kinds of ideas about right. being in the world, which I think is fantastic because, I mean, when we think about uh, changes in terms of women's roles and women's place in our own society, right, we can think about feminism, and feminism is not about hating men. I mean, the news, uh, I think, from a feminist perspective, is good for everybody. It's really sort of thinking about... Uh, women is also being uh, productive workers and being paid for their work outside of the domestic sphere, which is unpaid work, but also men being more involved in terms of family life and raising children, right? I think we it enables us to all be sort of more fully uh, human rather yeah. than just sort of um, assigning particular kinds of roles, behaviors, responsibilities. Just following to, the model. Right, to one group or the other. Right. Well, I know in my personal life, uh, I can think of many examples where men are caregivers mm -hmm. and women are breadwinners. Mm -hmm. I want to go quickly back to feminism. Mm -hmm. um, in my research, I think I could draw almost a straight line from the women's suffrage movement to what's happening here as far as changing gender norms. Do you agree with that, or is that a little misguided? I don't know if I would draw a straight line, per se. Um, I mean, if we think about uh, women getting the right to vote, um, and that first wave of feminism where it was about sort of um, enfranchisement, right? right, women being enfranchised, uh, 
who was sort of at the forefront of that movement? I mean, you had women. We don't talk as much about women like Sojourner Truth, for example, right, who was both uh, a woman and black. Uh, when we think about suffrage, we might think about Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Susan oh, B. Anthony. Lavinia even. Dock. Okay. Do you know that name? No, I don't. You'll have to listen to our podcast. Okay, darn. <laughs> okay, um, I'll be on it. Um, so when we think about the second wave of the feminist movement, sort of in the late 60s and the 70s, again, I think we had lots of women of color who were um, out there making social change, both within the civil rights movement, but also within the women's movement. And yet it became, and that was one of the criticisms of second wave feminism, is that it was this kind of very white middle class kind of movement. Right. And in the 80s... Um, this was in the 70s, This you're was saying? in the 70s, okay. right? Sort of second wave feminism, right? Who do we think about? We think about people like Gloria Steinem, um, Robin Morgan, right, who wrote Sisterhood is, is Powerful and Sisterhood is Global. Um, but... We can also think about in the 80s, uh, there were lots of critiques of this kind of white middle class liberal feminism. Right, a little pushback. A little push. Well, and just also thinking about differences among women. Mm-hmm. So we can think about differences between women and men, which are significant and important, but we can also think about differences among women. So women are not just some sort of monolithic right. care category. We can think about differences in terms of race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, a whole host of things. I guess the reason I, I think that way is because the women's suffrage movement was a destabilization of the white male patriarchy in a big way. Mm-hmm. And I think what's happening now, uh, similarly, is kind of upsetting the the balance, you might call it, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. So I I just kind of like the idea that you know things are opening up mm-hmm. and things are changing. And I'm I can think of examples, and you know, I have a daughter; she's in high school, and the conversations we have around the dinner table are not conversations I ever had <laughs> or heard Did about. I? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when I was young, growing up in the 70s, uh, it's just the way it was. You know, you didn't ask these questions. They didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So do you think that a part of this is seeing uh, role models out there that represent different choices? What impact do you think that's had? Yes, I, I do. I mean, if you think about, I'm guessing we're roughly around the same age. I was raised uh, and I grew up sort of in the 70s as well. Mm and we didn't talk about these things either. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, so it was an incredibly segregated city as well. And so we talked about race, but it was uh, not in a real positive way, unfortunately. Um, and so I think that, for example, you and I are really the beneficiaries of second wave feminism and the development of various kinds of feminisms. Mm-hmm. So that now when we're raising our children, I mean, I have a teenage son. We're always talking about this. He kind of rolls his eyes, you know, oh, mom, are we going to talk about race again? Are we going to talk about, (laughs) right? But he can look at things now and he really does a great job of sort of analyzing the world in which he lives. Mm -hmm. And what's terrific, I think, about, I mean, I feel very fortunate to be working with young people um, in college is that they are very open to um, kind of new ways of thinking, new ways of being in the world, um, and being more accepting of uh, kind of breaking out of some of these gender norms that we sort of referred to earlier. Okay. Um, Implicit gender stereotypes. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit? Uh, Hmm. It's a loaded phrase, and 
I'm not, uh, if you could describe it, I think it would be helpful. Well, I mean, we hear a lot now about implicit bias, right, as it relates to things like race and ethnicity, particularly in terms of um, sort of police actions towards particularly men of color. Um, but when I think about implicit sort of gender um, bias or stereotypes, it's just sort of assuming that people with a certain sort of uh, biological makeup, certain sort of physiology, certain um, you know genitalia, hormones, etc., that they should be good at certain things or that they should know how to do certain things and men the same way. I mean, we use this in terms of everyday language. You know, we say things like boys will be boys or girls are just like this or women are just like this. Somehow assuming some sort of essential nature, right? And that's one of the things that when we talk about the social construction of gender, it really shakes up that idea of some sort of essential nature that women and men have people talk about that in terms of feminist theory as you know an essentialist perspective um there isn't anything really sort of essential there i mean we do women can do certain things right women give birth men can't do that some of those kinds of things but it's the meanings that are attached to those things that make all the difference i think but don't you think that the human brain needs to make a certain set of assumptions in order to function I understand that. I think that that does happen, right? I think that happens in a variety of ways. We want to sort of care, uh, categorize things. I, I would agree with that. And I think what's um, important when we think about either race or when we think about gender is that's one of the first things that, one of the clues we think that we have to uh, about people when we look at them, right? Oh, we sort of think that we can put them in a racial category or that if they belong if we think about them as women or men, right, or, or what if we're not sure, right? Is this, a, is this a boy or is this a girl, right? What does that do in terms of our interactions and how we think about those folks if we cannot categorize them? Mm -hmm. So I think that that's what's really interesting um, about kind of thinking about people who are a little, a little less binary and a little bit more gender fluid is that um, it's harder to sort of, place them yeah, right yes. and sort of what does that do then to our how does that shape our interactions with them because we so fundamentally structure society in these kinds of ways in terms of more simplistic ways of thinking about gender or thinking about race or uh, other kinds of aspects of our social location or social identity mm -hmm. for some of these students you're interacting with these young people who are maybe in this what we'll call gender fluid um, moment how do they perceive the world perceives them? Do they feel that they can go out there and be what they want to be, or do they feel the world is going to push back? Or Well, I haven't really had lots of opportunities to ask these kinds of questions of them and interact, um, but I would surmise that by, say, for example, at Wilson now, we have all gender bathrooms, that that creates a certain kind of environment that is a little bit more supportive to the choices that they're making. So it's kind of an acknowledgement. It is an acknowledgement. That's how I read it, you it, know. And, and a yeah, an acknowledgement and a type of support, right? right? So that you exist, you matter. Yes. So that um, 
rather than thinking about how do we get people to change so it it fits this very simple you know bathroom example you know you're either here or you're here to say how can we change the bathrooms (laughs) so that we can make them spaces where anybody feels comfortable using them Mm -hmm. in your studies do you find there are economic and other social consequences to people who are not in these this binary mode oh my gosh yes i mean uh, there's a lot of social uh, sociological research that looks at, for example, uh, the economic damage that some women suffer who are mothers. It's literally called the motherhood penalty, right? So, for example, women are in the labor market, women are in the workforce, and um, they uh, they have a child. And so our gender expectations are really that women are going to stay home and take care of the child or right maybe we'll uh, put children into child care right so if we put them into child care women are damned if they do that because oh you know you should really be staying home you're a bad mom right look at all this research that says that uh, you know women uh, or children do poorly in child care which it's not the case Um, but if so if they put them into child care that's a problem so if they work that's a problem if they stay home and are out of the labor market for a few years, maybe while their children are very young and then they go back into the labor market, they really kind of suffer. The resume takes a hit. Yes, and it's an economic penalty, Mm -hmm. right? That um, as women move through their working lives and their careers, I mean, it sort of builds up. It's an opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. Where do we see the most, or where do you see the most resistance to these changes that are happening? I mean, we could talk about religious communities maybe struggling with some of this. Um, where do you feel like the pushback is coming from? Hmm. Well, I think, uh, you know, we've got people in political offices, so they've got a lot of political power to make a difference, to either create a context that's more accepting uh, and enabling people to be who they are or identifying the way that they choose. So you've got politicians who are trying to make laws that um, make it more difficult for people to live in the world as they choose. Um, I think partly some religious groups, but there are also other religious groups that are also very supportive. So I think the pushback, what's challenging is that because we've so socially organized our society in this very kind of simple binary sort of way of being I mean even just go into any kind of a a store go into a Target go into you know a Macy's whatever I mean there we section things off this is the boy area this is the girl area this is men's clothes women's clothes you can look at toys you can look a whole at a whole host of things where saying okay well we want to be a little more fluid and kind of open things up for people that kind of creates some problems with consumerism and consumption right. we don't organize consumption like that mm-hmm. it's not to say men can't go buying pots and pans and things like that they certainly can but we don't socially organize ourselves um, in a way that allows for um, more and differentiated gender expressions what kind of change do you think would be needed to kind of open up the society to these changes? I think, uh, you know, all gender bathrooms is, is one uh, example. I think, um, 
you know, family bathrooms. I mean, the bathroom thing, it seems sort of simple, but it's something everybody uses regularly. But I mean, it's an important thing. I just remember, I mean, you're a child of the 70s, perhaps like I am. I mean, there were there seemed to be more unisex kinds of things at that time. And if you think about what's happening, what was happening at the col- in the culture in the 70s, there was a little bit more kind of um, openness to change. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really see a lot of unisex anything mm-hmm. um, nowadays. So we can also think about even just, and I talk to my students about this, right? Think about toys. So we've got something like Legos, very basic kind of toy, but we gender them. So the girls have, and you might know this because you have a child, right? Uh, my um, daughter played with pink Legos. Pink Legos, and now there's the kind of friend series of Legos, and the boys have the Star Wars. I mean, we do that. W- once you start to kind of recognize it, you see it all over the place. So it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to involve really sort of fundamental changes in a lot of things, but I think we've got more openness in the culture. There's sort of more... Um, I think I want to be positive and I am a glass half full kind of person. So I see more acceptance to sort of um, very gender expressions. And I think even just these battles over something like the bathroom is, you know, these are sort of battlefronts. Could anyone have seen that coming, that that would be the culture war about where you go to the bathroom? But there's a lot of culture. I mean, there, there are, I agree with you, but there are also a lot of culture wars if we think about bodies, right? I mean, we can think about um, women's bodies and women, there's a lot of battlegrounds there in terms of women controlling their own oh, bodies, sure. who are controlling bodies, you know, we can, so um, yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of opportunities to make change. So it feels like... The floodgates are opening on change right now. Did, did you did, did you see this coming? Was this something as a sociologist you, you just could kind of feel a groundswell? I mean, in my lifetime, I could not have imagined that gay marriage would be legal. Mm-hmm. It, it still kind of amazes me that, you know, America managed to get that done. Well, I think if you, I think sociologically, um, that seems to be a change that makes more sense from a sociological perspective than, say, for example, the lack of changes that we've seen in terms of what's happening in terms of race in our society. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right. We've had tremendous and pretty um, quick changes with respect to a kind of general acceptance of same-sex marriage, although I have friends who've been working in that movement and it doesn't seem as rapid a change for them because oh, sure. they've been working they've at been it for decades. It, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, but if you think about uh, sort of the GLBT movement, lots of us know people who are members of that community. And so we've got this kind of personal interaction with them, and we love them. And so I think that kind of closeness, the interaction, the fact that we have these relationships with people, I think has been beneficial in terms of changes in the culture. I think we've got worse segregation now than we did, you know, when uh, King was assassinated, you know, in 68. So, I mean, we've got more segregated schools. Look at our cities. Um, And I think that one of the reasons perhaps, you know, we've got so much racial tension is because we're much more segregated and are not taking opportunities to interact with people um, who are different from us or who we might think we don't understand. 
Right. Yeah, we, uh, you can listen to our other podcast about diversity and inclusion. Uh, we discussed this exact topic, and I think that uh, a part of that conversation is acknowledgement of the other or people, not mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. But can I just say one other thing about the other and people, not us? And okay. that is then, um, and I think this is true whether or not we talk about gender or race uh, or sexuality, that the not like us sort of assumes a particular kind of norm, right? And it's the powerful group that occupies that normative space. So if we think about the GLBT movement, it's heterosexuals who, I mean, if we think about people who are other or not like us, I think we're sort of assuming this kind of heteronormative sort of space. Same thing with like thinking about gender or thinking about women, right? Men are sort of occupying that kind of norm, Uh, And with respect to race and ethnicity, it's about whiteness. So I think we've kind of got to think about we're all in this. And as I mentioned earlier, in terms of thinking about feminism and that feminism was challenging sort of male power and privilege, and that was a benefit for women, but it was also a benefit in many ways, not always, but a, a benefit for men in a kind of opening up. So I I think if we think about race and ethnicity or sexuality in that way too, um, we're all kind of going to benefit from being a little bit more open and seeing the world from another person's perspective and social location. It doesn't look the same for everybody. Yeah, I was making that statement from a personal perspective. Um, You know, I am a white male. So um, looking around at, you know, even the people in town here, I can see people where we don't have a lot of shared experience, mm-hmm. but um, we need to acknowledge each other and our value to the society. So I agree wholeheartedly mm-hmm. with everything you're saying. What are biological- Can I say one other thing? You sure can. Shared experience? Sure. So I think, yes, if, we, you know, if we're women, we move through the world in a certain way, or if we're a man, we move through the world in a certain way, um, or whether or not we're talking about race. But I think some experiences we do share. So, for example, in terms of we think about uh, African-Americans or Latinos or white people. Boy, lots of us have that same experience of loving our child or right. loving our spouse. Or I think we have more desiring. in common than, than yes, is different, actually. Exactly. It's just a matter of pushing through that exactly. uncomfortable space yes. of, you know, hi, nice to meet you yes. and that sort of thing, which yes. is a challenge. Um Biology and evolutionary biology. What? Yeah, let's. I do want to talk about this because I, maybe you can give historical precedence where in ancient cultures this kind of gender fluidity existed. Do you have any examples of? Well, in terms of thinking about culture, but it's not. Um, it's not going that far back, but it's sort of looking at Native American uh, culture has a bird ash tradition which allows for a sort of third gender. So it's a biological male but has the sort of um, expectations, sort of responsibilities of um, the women in that culture. So there's kind of a place for that. So I think certain cultures, you know, sort of allow for Mm -hmm. that a little bit more than other cultures. Mm -hmm. So I do, again, I I think it's cultural. Well, I bring up evolution and biology because, you know, what, what are the biological factors in play here? I mean, in terms of, People who are in a gender fluid situation, or you know, they're not really checking a box. Does, is biology a factor here, or is this really kind of the culture 
and their reaction to the culture. That's hard. I mean, I think that that's the sort of, you know, big question. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm, I'm not sure. I think some people talk about I was born like this, right? right? Really kind of feeling like they were born like this. And if we think just about um, sexual expression, right? Some people feel that they were born lesbian or they were born gay. Uh, other people meet someone who they fall in love with and that's who they decide to spend their right. lives in a very full way sexually and otherwise. So um, I think it's sort of in that case sort of depends on how the individual thinks about themselves. Right. So more, uh, the, the effect of culture on the individual and their interactions with the world. Yeah. That, that makes sense. It could be, but other people feel like, you know, I've sort of always been born like this or, mm-hmm. um, you know, some folks who, uh, are trans, you know, maybe just feel like I, this is not the body I should have been born into. Mm-hmm. Who am I to say? You know, I'll sort of, uh, you know, I'll use our, our Pope here. Who am I to judge, right? I think that statement is key. And I think... Who am I to judge? Yeah, I think that's key. And I think for all of us, we need to put ourselves in that position a mm-hmm. lot more than we do. Mm-hmm. Um, what someone else is going through, who am I to judge? You know, and I think that's a... That's how I try to move through the world. Do I do it all the time? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, it's an effort I make. Well, I hope you enjoyed being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. We'd love to have you back. Um, Please come back and join us again, and we can have uh, another stimulating conversation. So thank you, Julie. Thanks, Pete. And now to producer Jeremy. All right. Thanks, guys. Before we go, just a reminder that the Franklin County Coalition for Progress has another Common Grounds event coming up next Saturday at the Coyle Free Library Conservatory. We'll be talking about the workings of state and local government in Pennsylvania with political science professor Sarah Grove that Saturday, April 14th from 10 until noon. And in May, we'll be hearing from District Attorney Matt Fogel about the opioid epidemic. Common Grounds is a program of the FCCP with gatherings at the library the second Saturday of each month. You can find more information at FCCforprogress.org. You can also find more information on our show there. Just click on Progress Pod. Thanks so much for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to the Progress Pod in the iTunes store and find us on Twitter. We're at the Progress Pod.